This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Professor Peter Betke, who is a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University the BB&T Professor of Study of Capitalism and the Director of the F.A. FA Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. It's great to be here with you. So I want to get started with your background. Uh, I know you're an economist in the uh, Austrian tradition. And I was curious if you could explain to us what that is. What the Austrian School of Economics is? Um, So I think the simplest way to understand the designation of the Austrian School of Economics is it's just associated with a series of ideas uh, that uh, draw the roots 150 years ago uh, to the founding of the Marginalist Revolution. Um, And they then uh, those ideas uh, were at the core of modern neoclassical economics. And that tradition migrated first to the London School of Economics, but then also uh, into the United States, but also Switzerland and Geneva and various different other branches. And, uh, you know, then those ideas continued to percolate, but they were challenged um, as methodological trends in economics emerged, analytical trends in economics emerged to challenge them. And then there's some remnant of the economics profession that still has tried to utilize those ideas to challenge or counter. And the, and the way to think about the Austrian approach is that it puts a, a heavy emphasis on the animating agent uh, and the subjective perceptions of that agent. So there's subjectivity of value, subjectivity of, of, of expectations, subjectivity of knowledge that individuals have. So there's no objective costs, uh, right? They're the subjective costs. There's no objective use value, you know? So if I look at a Picasso painting, uh, that's different from a painting from Pete, not because of the objective qualities associated with paint and canvas, but because of the subjective perception of the value of those various different exercises in artistic uh, work. And so subjectivism is the first core idea. The second core idea is a focus on processes and activities. So as opposed to uh, equilibrium and end states. So rather than looking at optimality and equilibrium, uh, the Austrians look at the process that brings about, uh, you know, basically best strategy responses or an equilibrium. So it's not that the Austrians deny and equilibrium, one of the most important questions all economists always ask is solve for the equilibrium, right? And so we try to trace out, you know, what, what would be the various different moves that would take place that would dovetail in pure coordination. But the second point that the Austrians always emphasize is we're part of the equilibrium. That equilibrium is endogenous to the activity of the actors inside of the model. And so by, by looking at the processes or the activity that becomes the focus of attention rather than the end state as the focus of attention. So in a recent paper, he's not an Austrian, but he's a complex adaptive modeler, a guy named Brian Author, um, who is at the Santa Fe Institute. 
he just wrote a wonderful paper that was just released in April of this year, uh, uh, calling for an economics of, of verbs, not an economics of nouns. So it's a, we need to have an economics about activity, not an economics about states of affairs. And, it, that, and, and he acknowledges that's what the Austrians have been up to. And for those of you who are in the philosophy or, or the history of ideas, there's a fantastic paper by R.G. Collingwood in uh, like 1926 or something like that in the Journal of Philosophy called Economics as a Philosophical Science. And in that, what he argues is that a philosophical science is a science about human activity, not about states of rest. So that's the second thing is market processes, this examination of in, 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 in some meta sense, like the restless clock. Rather than rather than the idea that the clock is at stasis, it's the ongoing uh, process. So the governing dynamics at work, not after they've worked. And, and most economists focus on what happens after everything is done and worked out. What would be the state of affairs that we find ourselves in? The Austrians are looking at process. Again, for your philosophy audience, this is like Nozick criticizing, you know, part, part of his criticism of Rawls. Right, is that the difference between end state views of justice versus process views of justice? Third part is again, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll end up by making a reference back to Nozick again to relate here is a spontaneous order or invisible hand explanations. So that the Austrians are the 20th century, uh, in economics, the main champions of that kind of style of reasoning. There's other people, of course. So Austrian economics doesn't have an exclusive monopoly on good thinking. So that should be the first thing that we disabuse people of from someone from an Austrian point of view. It's just that the Austrians um, are, Hayek in particular is, you know, the person that put the most emphasis within economics on spontaneous order and invisible hand explanations. And if you follow Nozick, again, it's a very, very straightforward, methodological and analytical position, which is that you misbegin with an animating agent, you put that animating agent into an institutional filter. That institutional filter will spit out uh, various different equilibrating processes. And so Nozick gives us a class of 16 cases or something like that. I think that's the number, but it might be 14. But, you know, half of them are good and other half are dysfunctional. So it's not the case that invisible hand explanations only explain, uh, you know, benevolent outcomes. They can also explain like dysfunctional outcomes, but where's the explanation come from? It's not in the agent itself, but it's in the institutional filter. So the spontaneous order or invisible hand explanations are explaining how you can go from the, the sort of, uh, you know, striving to do the best that you can given your situation or choice under constraints to this outcome through this institutional filter of in the case of commercial society, property, contract, and consent, which unleashes an entrepreneurial action or whatever. But in outside of commercial context, let's what is that institutional filter that does the guiding, the disciplining, the luring of human behavior? And you know, we get different outcomes. So under politics, for example, the institutional filter will generate a concentration of benefits and a dispersal of costs. And that has various characteristics associated with that outcome. So when we study politics as exchange, we need to see that 
you know, we take voter preferences here, we have a machination of politics here, and then we have an outcome over here, and the disjoint between the voter preferences and the policy outcomes can be explained by the machination of politics, and that's the process mechanism, right? And so the second point of the Austrians and the third point of the Austrians are sort of related to one another. Process theory is what leads us to emphasize invisible hand explanations. I hope that was okay. <laughs> that dovetails nicely with my second question, which is economists often emphasize um, incentives. Incentives matter. Yeah. Most economists will tell you this. I, I have yet to meet an economist that doesn't emphasize incentives. Yeah. Why? I mean, why are incentives such an important aspect of things? Exactly. Well, I think you have to understand what economists mean by incentives, as opposed to say a lot of ordinary conversation conflates incentives with motivation. And economists don't mean the same thing by that. Okay. So, you know, am I motivated to do X, Y, and Z versus am I incentivized to do X, Y, and Z? Those are various different things. So, the reason why uh, the econ economists basically uh, think of motivations as preferences. Okay. And so then what economists, the standard economics trope is that we're going to treat preferences as given. And then what we're going to look at is a variation in the institutional environment within which people interact. And that variation is going to give them different relative prices, which will end up by giving them different behaviors. All right. And so the incentive structure is given by that institutional environment. And that just means that you're rewarded more for X rather than Y. And so you'll tend to do more X than you'll do Y, right? Even if, and so let's take, uh, let's, let's try to think of some examples, right? So uh, let's use sports as a, as a, as a starting point of, of, of the analogy. So let's call about, talk about homo basketballicus. Okay. So, you know, man as a basketball player. And so man as a basketball player is going to want to do what? It's going to want to score the most points at in the most efficacious way or minimize the points of the opponent in the most efficacious way that they can so that you're trying to score more points than your opponent. Okay. Now, the way you go about trying to do that is going to depend on the various rules of basketball at different times. And so the way that you would try to go and do that when there wasn't a shot clock meant that Dean Smith, who's the inventor of this, was incentivized to create a four corners offense, right, which was to stall the ball, right, and, you know, keep the ball from even trying to score because you would get the ball on your side. He had a, a, his star point guard in the 1970s was a guy named Phil Ford, who was a master at running the, the four corners. And so they would put the ball in his hands and then, you know, he would basically stall the ball. If they try to stop him, he could get around guys, get fouled, go to the free throw line. And we'd end up by having scores. So, you know, Dean Smith was known for being a ball control kind of coach. An old joke used to be who could hold Michael Jordan under 20 points. Dean Smith, that was his coach, right? So only Dean Smith could hold him under that. So um, another idea is that is the shift in, in the game to the, the establishment of the three-point line. So the game of basketball has changed because we changed the rules of the game. When we change the rules, that changes the incentive structure so that 
what it meant to be efficient in scoring changed. So now I can get the same, I can get a bigger bang for the buck by shooting 33% from three, where it used to require me to shoot 50% from two, right? So, you know, in terms of the efficiency of my offense. So then that meant that the relative price, quote, right, or the relative payoff shifted such that basketball changed its strategy. All right. And so if we can do that with regard to basketball, imagine if we start doing that with regard to any of our activities with what we're subsidizing, you know, think we're in universities. Right. So in universities, uh, we pay a lot of lip service to teaching. Right. And we're supposed to care about our students and, you know, all these things like that. But yet when it comes to our, uh, you know, our salary raises and our jobs and everything, everything turns on whether or not we're publishing papers that get cited by other people or in prestigious journals or whatever. And so the relative payoff for the different activities means that on the margin, we'll do less concern with teaching and more concern with our research, even if we're trying to be a great teacher. You know, if we're motivated to be a great teacher because we had a great teacher, we still, nevertheless, on the margin, will respond to the incentives that are set by the rules of the game under which we find ourselves playing. So in, in, in econo speak, what's going on is that we're all trying, we're all striving to do the best that we can given our situation, but our reward structure is provided for us by our situation. And so we have to pay attention to that situation in order to understand how it is that we will engage in the most efficacious uh, planning for our own behavior as we possibly could. Let me just say one slight thing just to clarify, which is you'll note that I say that we strive to do the best that we can given our situation. I'm not saying we achieve the best that we can given our situation. A lot of rational choice models close that. And they say, you know, they basically assume that your striving is achieving. And I think that's a mistake because what it doesn't allow us to understand is the adaptations and adjustments we must make when our plans are frustrated. So we interpret signals, right? So the incentives matter, but what incentives have to do is be understood. They have to be interpreted. And we misunderstand all the time. We re read the signals the wrong way. So we think we're going to get rewarded for X, but really we're getting rewarded for X prime. And we didn't do X prime. We just did X. And then, you know, we get smacked in the head and we're like, no, you don't get the rewards. And you're like, what am I doing? You know, and, and, and assistant professors face this all the time because, you know, they, they're told, oh, you got to get really good teaching evaluations. You know, you got to put butts in the seat, you know, to make sure that we, we're having things. So they, 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 you know, have good office hours. They meet with the students. They get the, you know, the plaque that says they're the teacher of the year award or whatever. And then they meet with the tenure committee and they're like, huh, well, you're not doing enough research because you're spending all your time teaching. You're like, you told me to teach the honors principles class. You know, what the hell am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, yeah, you do that, but you got to keep doing your research, right? And so how do we adjust and adapt and learn is that we have to interpret the multiplicity of these signals coming at us, revise our plans, adapt and adjust, and then things change circumstances change. And so, you know, the circumstances change and they're not totally fixed. And so that means we have to adapt and adjust again. And so to me, I think the way to think about the, the human dilemma 
is that we are we live in a world of scarcity. That scarcity requires us to make trade-offs. Trade-offs are really complicated to negotiate, so we need to have some aids to the mind to help us negotiate them. In a commercial society, those are provided for us by the property rights, the prices, and the profit and loss signals. Outside of commercial affairs, we have to have something that serves the same kind of, you know, husbanding of, of our resources, our guiding of our activity, our luring us to new uh, opportunities and disciplining us when we make mistakes. You have to find that in the other social institutions outside of commercial society that substitute for property prices and profit and loss. But in each and one of those issues, we have a, you know, basically an incentive wrapped in a signal that we're interpreting. And there's a lot of noise in those signals. And so it requires this active agent to be able to seek through those things. If I can, I, I just put this up the other day in my class. And uh, it, 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 was a, it was a recommendation to me, given to me by Vernon Smith many years ago when I was a graduate student, which was uh, Vernon Smith uh, really stressed what you could learn by reading uh, Temple Grandin, okay? And, and one of Temple Grandin's books is called The Unwritten Rules of Social Inter Interaction. Okay, I think that's the title of it. And the reason is, is because she had difficulty reading social signals. So she had to write them down so that she knew how to follow the social rules, where most of us, we can read them, right? But by doing that, she made implicit those things which are, uh, excuse me, made explicit those things which most of us treat as implicit. And we learn a lot from that. So there's a, a phrase in, in anthropology that's used sometimes, it says, a fish doesn't recognize the water that they swim in. And we learn a lot when we pay attention to those social silences and we take what's implicit and make it explicit. And that helps us understand the various social noise that we're all dealing with. And economic actors are not immune to those social noises as well. And so the incentives, the signals that are wrapped uh, the incentives that are wrapped in signals are what are vital to our social coordination. And so that's why economists stress it. Some economists stress it in a more mechanical way. I was just stressing it in a more like loosey-goosey creative way, right? Where there's some slack in the system and we're learning and adapting and adjusting. It's like, you know, <laughs> to use another sports analogy, I, I think economists should be more like Muhammad Ali or Sugar Ray Leonard. We bob and weave and we dance and we do all that stuff. And, and a lot of economists are more like Mike Tyson or Joe Fraser. They're just a blunt force instrument and they keep coming at you. By the way, in, in any one of those boxers, if you get hit with a left hook, you're in trouble. So I, I'm not denying the, the, the value of the blunt, blunt force instrument. But I think that economics in the hands of its masters is more of a nuanced and artistic idea rather than this blunt force, you know, incentives matter. Just alone, yeah. So that actually, you actually set me up for my next question quite nicely. Um, I think I think more like a philosopher than an economist. And I, I'm assuming you think like an economist. And I'm wondering, um, do you think there are economic insights and tools that philosophers could benefit from in their work? And maybe vice versa, that maybe the economists could benefit from some of the tools and insights from philosophers. 
Yeah, it's a, that's that's I mentioned before we started recording that I gave this talk in London yesterday, and that's actually what the talk was all about. <laughs> um, and uh, so, first of all, analytic philosophers uh, sound very similar to economists, right? The, the, I mean, it's 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 a very similar style of reasoning, uh, the way they go about doing things. Okay, and uh, and so there's a lot in common in that. Um, you know, continental philosophers less so. Right. Uh, they're they're you know, but it's in a weird way. The kind of stuff I was just talking about is in many ways a little bit more amenable to some of the things continental philosophers do than than what analytic philosophers do. Uh, what do I mean by that? There's a difference between demonstrative reasoning and plausible reasoning, you know, and even analytic philosophers would recognize that difference. But there's a difference between demonstrative reasoning, which is basically takes as its standard, you know, proofs. Right. And then there's. Uh, you know, basically, uh, um, you know, plausible reasoning, which is more, you know, probabilistic and, you know, uh, more tra uh, uh, process tracing. Uh, that's a term that Nicholas Rescher used, you know, process tracing and, and thinking about this. So anyway, I, I think that here's an interesting question for you. Uh, right. So Amartya Sen in the 1980s, wrote a fantastic book. It's called On Ethics and Economics. And what his argument was and is, is that um, in the classical period, economists were in fact philosophers. They just were philosophers that then shifted their focus of attention to the ordinary business of life, rather than man in some other exotic, uh, uh, you know, periods of life, like martyrdom or, or, you know, religious belief or their social, you know, uh, uh, social commitments or revolution or whatever. So we're talking about the buying and abstaining from buying of trinkets, basically. And, you know, we're going to we're going to study those things. And uh, but we're moral philosophers applied to that area. And then what happened was economics transformed itself in the late 19th century going into the 20th century to view itself more as a version of social engineering. So what econ economics became was a tool to engineer outcomes that we viewed as desirable, whether those were growth or whether they were eradicating social ills like poverty, ignorance, squalor, disease, and, and, and idleness. You know, we were going to develop the tools uh, to do that. The most uh, advanced form of this is welfare economics, basically, and social choice theory. And what Sen argues is that imagine you have a production possibility frontier for economic knowledge. And what we did was we moved to a corner solution of engineering. And what he wants to do is push us back along the pro production possibility frontier to, to trade off a little bit of that engineering and get a little bit more moral philosophy back into the picture, more ethics, more discussion of that. And that's Amartya Sen. And he follows that up, of course, with writing Development is Freedom, which is his effort at doing that. He continued to do that stuff. But you know, if you look at the main outlets in economics, so the American Economic Review, the Journal of Political Economy, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, or Econometrica, we haven't made much of a shift since he wrote that in 86 or 87, you know, so we're still operating down in the, in the corner solution of economics as a science of social engineering, 
not economics as a science of social philosophy. And so it would be really valuable in the PPE movement, not for philosophers to try to be more like economists, which is what a lot of philosophers do. They try to then be their own version of social choice theorists, right? Uh, and, they, and they work on that. But for economists to be a little bit more like moral philosophers and care about questions having to do with justice and not necessarily only in the Rawlsian framework of it, though Rawls actually is the one that dominates even when economists think about it. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, sort of the ask these broader questions again uh, uh, about that, the philosopher's knowledge. And just to um, give you a reference point again, um, so in, a, in an essay that A.C. Pagu published in 1908 um, on economics and its applications, he actually argues that um, economics can only fulfill its task if it gives up the philosopher's point of view of seeking knowledge for knowledge sake and adopts the physician's point of view, which is seeking knowledge to be a healer. And it's that transformation of economics as economics as healing science of society that I think has gotten economics in trouble. Um, and that we need more to move back to those thinkers that were more humble and recognized that they were philosophers, that were just studying market phenomena from a philosophical point of view, rather than the idea that they were engineers that could heal the world. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. I was just thinking about how Socrates would think about that answer. And you put it nicely, um, thinking about social interactions involving trinkets. And I think, you know, Socrates thinks he's doing something very noble. He's, he's alerting people to their deep ignorance of things. People don't really understand things like justice or knowledge. And the point of his Socratic method is to bring that knowledge, that ignorance to the forefront. Yeah. If only because Socrates' broader view of things is that we are motivated by why, what we perceive as the good. So the reason you make coffee in the morning, you get out of bed, you cross the street, these are all things you apprehend as being good. Now they may not actually be good, you might be wrong about that, but you think they're good, that's why you're doing them. And so Socrates thinks we're under all these misapprehensions of the good, and if we correct those misapprehensions, it's better for the soul, it's better for flourishing, it's better for society. So he would think, I, I suspect, no, I don't know, I, I can't ask him obviously, but I think, he would, I think he would say something like, is that really philosophy if you were involved with thinking about trinkets? Like that seems sort of puerile and pedestrian, right? Yeah. Like, so I, so, so <laughs> I'll take two stabs at that because the first one is that I'm, I'm uh, being self-effacing uh, in that, whereas actually I think in our buying and, and, and abstaining from buying, in our decisions to work, uh, to pursue various different uh, ideas, there's a ton of very important values embedded in those things um, that are in fact, uh, not just uh, profane, but actually very profound. And we should find dignity in work. Uh, we should find uh, purpose in craftsmanship and, uh, and, and, and the innovativeness. I think one of the real lessons of economics from my perspective, again, not every economist would agree with this, but I think that a certain version of economics 
focuses on the clever and creative actors that populate our model and give priority to them over the cleverness and creativity of the theorists of the model. All right. So this is one way to think about an implication of Smith's idea that the only difference between the street porter and the philosopher is in the mind of the philosopher. Uh, what we want to do is we want to, you know, deprivilege that philosopher in, in some fundamental sense and give priority to the creativity and cleverness of the individuals inside the models themselves, ordinary people. And so one way that I think economics and the study of these trinkets uh, shows is that, um, you know, ordinary people can do extraordinary things if just given the freedom and scope to do so. Whereas an alternative approach, which probably traces all the way back to Plato, uh, would be that um, extraordinary people can do extraordinary things if we just give them the power to do so. And I think those two visions are in fact at odds with each other and economics is on the side of ordinary people, so. Well, funny that you say that, um, empowering ordinary people, right? And I think that's what markets do in part, free markets. And I wonder though, so in the back of my mind, and I'm gonna ask you to comment on contemporary sort of mores on this, but I worry in the back of my mind that we have free markets only insofar as voters and citizens have some faith in markets. Um, it's not that they think they're infallible, mind you, but that they have enough faith in them that they'll by and large, by and large, they'll leave markets alone. Remember that? Yeah. And I'm worried that um, since it looks like free markets do a lot to facilitate human flourishing by enabling ordinary people, but I'm wondering if that system can continue if you have enough people in the West that lose faith in it. So um, this is a very important point. I think that one of the main lessons that Mandeville threw to Smith and then picked up by modern economics was, is that you don't have to know in order to have, right? So part of the issue of understanding the spontaneous order is you don't really know, like in, in Adam Smith's common woolen coat or Leonard Bede's eye pencil or Milton Friedman's eye pencil, you know, the, the people that make up all the exchanges that produce the pencil don't even know each other, don't even know in many ways they're producing pencils. They just know that they're doing this. They fill all these different parts. But the question that you're asking, I think, is not do they have to know in order to have, it's do they have to know and appreciate in order to sustain. And I think there's like a tipping point. So they don't have to know everything in detail about it. So they don't all have to become economists and understand the principle of the invisible hand. But they have to not believe in mass that every dollar that is earned is unearned and therefore subject to appropriate confiscation by someone who thinks they could spend it better, right? And, and when we're when crony capitalism gets mixed up, because money is omnipresent, right? So money's omnipresent. So political capitalism has lots of money slushing around. Laissez-faire capitalism has money slushing around. People see money and they say, oh, that's capitalism. What they don't see is 
that it's capitalism with a big, huge thumb on the scale weighing towards the concentrated interests, uh, you know, who benefit from the special privileges. So they, they confuse laissez-faire capitalism with a version of, of, uh, of mercantilism, like writ large, in some sense. And economics was born in a criticism of mercantilism. And so we forget all of this when we look at our modern society, which has, so again, in my most recent book, it's called the, A Struggle for a Better World, um, I have a chapter in there which uh, talks about uh, the reception of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose um, and, and the difference between that and the way capitalism and freedom was, was uh, you know, received. And then I ask a question about how would kids that are sitting in, my, in a principal's class today, how would they receive the world? So I was a college freshman roughly when Milton Friedman's Free to Choose came out. So what did I experience during my lifetime that made that message resonate so strongly with me? Well, Vietnam War ended in failure, Nixon and Watergate, all right? Then, you know, Saturday Night Live starts, and one of the first things they do is make fun of Jerry Ford, you know, for his thing. And then you get Jimmy Carter, and, you know, Jimmy Carter does a bunch of, you know, sort of goofy things like, you know, his Playboy interview and you know, a bunch of other things is jumping out of the boat because he thought the bunny was going to attack him. And, you know, these are coming on TV with a cardigan sweater and telling us all to keep our thermostats at 56 because there's, you know, a natural gas shortage. And he was going to use the Boy Scouts to like check up on you in your house to make sure you're doing it. I mean, just these things were like, so no one could think of a politician in a, like a romantic way, right? That's one. And then on top of that, you have this reality of the failure of the of the welfare warfare state. You have the stagflation, all these things like that. So I'm sitting there, and the summer before I'm a freshman and uh, taking economics, I was working digging pools, and I was the youngest person on the crew. And because of the gas lines, we had to siphon gasoline from one truck to another truck. Uh, otherwise, we would be in line for too long to get the gasoline in the truck. So while we went off to a job, one of the workers back there would take the car, wait online and get the truck filled up. And then either we would take that truck or we would siphon the gasoline. Plus there was a limit. So you had to wait online and there was a limited amount of gas you could get at the time. So you couldn't fill all the way up. So you would fill the one truck up and then you'd get it the next day and all that stuff. Well, I had to siphon the gasoline. I don't know if any of your listeners have ever siphoned gasoline, but what you do is in the old days, you'd stick a tube into one tank and then you start sucking on it, okay? And then you have to get the suction going, then the gasoline goes, then you have to like dump it, okay? Which means that you're gonna get some gasoline in your mouth, which by the way, is probably why I am the way I am. That's how I became an Austrian economist, maybe it's because I had too much gasoline in my head. But anyway, so I hated this job. I mean, it was just miserable. Uh, I, I was made fun of every day because I was doing this. You know, they were all, they would call me college boy and made fun of me and all these things. Like that. Guys I knew from the playground. So they were having a grand old time with me, you know, doing this. So I go off to college. I'm sitting in college. I have no interest in academics. I'm not there for that. I'm there for other things. And, uh, and this guy's up there and he explains to me why it is that there's gas shortages in America. And I'm like, oh, you know, like I was like a, a dog to a squirrel, right? It was like, whoa, oh, what's that? And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm spending, you know, uh, my nights, you know, reading economics books in my dorm bed, you know, like that, because I had this amazing professor that turned me on to that. 
Now, how would I, what would be the experience of kids today? What would be the experience of a kid today? Well, a kid that's sitting in my class now, they don't, they never even experienced communism. Didn't even exist when they were born. So they don't have it to them. That's like us watching a film of like Charlie Chaplin, right? It's like, oh, Charlie Chaplin, there used to be movies that people didn't speak in, you know, like how weird is that? And that's to them, that's what communism is. But what do they know? The U.S. has been in permanent war economy. In fact, we just got out of it and it didn't look like we won it. Right. So, you know, we right. So just like Vietnam, uh, they had the uh, the uh, uh, the anti-globalization movement. They have the financial crisis. They have the Occupy Wall Street movement. Right. Then they have the global pandemic. And then they have, you know, the, the obvious issues of criminal justice inequities. Right. And injustices, gross injustices in the criminal justice system. That's the world that they grew up in. So now you're sitting there trying to talk to them about economics and they're not going to receive the message the same way I did, because those concerns are not their concerns. So, you know, if I explain to them what the consequences are of, you know, raising a minimum wage for, uh, you know, workers in Seattle, Right. Or if I ask them to think about going to the giant, that's the, the, the supermarket around here, the giant and looking at the number of cashiers versus kiosks that have emerged since, you know, there's been changes in the wage structure. That's not going to be the issue because that the issue they're concerned about is, you know, gross inequality, uh, macroeconomic instability, uh, injustice, uh, these kind of things. So, I, you know, when we talk to them. We have to begin where they are, not where we are. They're not 61-year-old white males, right, that are sitting in their house, you know, uh, far removed from any of the, the, the junk, right? They're instead, they're kids that are growing up in this world where they're, they don't even know if they'll be able to get a job, you know, whether they'll be languishing debt for, you know, two decades or whatnot. And so what we have to say, now this is me different than the science of economics, so the science of economics, I think, has to explain to them about the adaptations and adjustments, this issue of the animating agent, the institutional filter, the processes. That, that is, is how we unleash their curiosity, is explaining the governing dynamics of the world that they see out the window. But I think economics also teaches them hope, right, and compassion, and they have to see that. So you, you don't reject the concerns that they have. What you do is show that economics would maybe suggest alternative means to obtain the ends that they seek. And then that's a different debate. So we want to unleash the curiosity of our students, and we want to also have them think hard about their compassion rather than think weakly about their compassion. I'm going to come wrap it up in a second, come back to you in, a, in a, an important challenge to this. Um, and, and then as, as liberals, so this is now non-economic, taking my hat off as an economist and instead putting my hat on as a citizen or as a, as a uh, right, is that I think that this is the other half of my struggle book, which is that we are struggling to advance the liberal cause, right? And so I think that, and, and by liberalism, I mean like radical true liberalism or what some of your listeners would call like radical libertarianism. So not... Uh, you know, just lower taxes, you know, not businessmen who want to smoke dope kind of, you know, libertarianism, but like real libertarianism, which is, 
you know, open borders, recognition of the universal rights of mankind, we're one another's dignified equals, these kind of, you know, core principles of what it means to be a liberal, right? We, we need to communicate that to the students because they've been taught their entire life that laissez-faire capitalism is about Bernie Madoff, right? Or, you know, and, and, or about Enron. Not that Enron is crony capitalism, or they think it's associated with Donald Trump, who in fact is the leading crony capitalist, right? I mean, that's like how he operated. So, so we have to provide reason and evidence in countering this. And so not only do we have to worry about an entire generation and a cultural zeitgeist that has become antithetical to work, antithetical to earned income, these kind of issues, and thinks it's all, you know, unearned income, but we also have to be very hard and, and, and get across to people the values of the Enlightenment project, that the Enlightenment project is about reason and evidence, and that the ascetic project, the anti-Enlightenment project of Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, that has to be challenged, because if we allow that to creep into all of our intellectual discussions, there's no adjudicating. There's no adjudicating on the facts. So go back to me being, uh, you know, the, uh, what I said is a proposition, the failure of the welfare warfare state. So how can I say that? Well, Vietnam, that's a warfare state. That failed, right? How about the welfare state? Well, that's the war on poverty. And then what you do is you look that for the amount of money that we put in, did those poverty, anti-poverty programs actually reduce the level of poverty in the country? No, they didn't. But in order to assess that, that's not an aesthetic. That's an actual fact. You have to study the facts. So you have to be factful. But if we deny that facts can have any relevance, because all that matters is intentions and feelings and emotions, then we've lost. And so if you combine those two things together, which is a emotional hatred for some injustice that you think is perpetuated because of X, Y, and Z, and then a belief that you can't adjudicate whether or not it was X, Y, and Z or A, B, and C, then you're going to be stuck with the aesthetic that the dominant intellectual culture paints. And that's why you get the end of truth. And when you get the end of truth, that's when the world goes. What I follow to that would be what political, social, or economic trend do you think gets ignored too much that's underappreciated, underdiscussed? Well, ironically, probably uh, it's, it's because it's a curse and a blessing is the role that technology can play in giving us greater and greater freedom. Because what we've seen is that was the original discourse. And now we're focused on the discourse about how, you know, what it does is, is creates more and more problems. We don't know how to process these things yet. Right. It causes us mental health problems, you know, and everything like that. And so we haven't we haven't yet kind of evolved. But I think the role, yeah, the role of our 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 technology and community, uh, right? And and how it is that technology can enable communities, that is something that we really, really need to focus on. Uh, because technology can be a great liberator or it can be a great uh, iron cage. It's just like at the turn of the 20th century when Weber was talking about modernity, right? You know, modernity is both the blessing of giving us tremendous economic development, but it also can be an iron cage. And I think we're faced with a similar kind of dilemma of coming to grips with where the world is today. 
And I think that while we talk about it all the time, we might not be talking about it the right way all the time. So that's a, that's, I'm kind of cheating a little bit because I'm, I'm taking a conversation that dominates us and I want to just switch the prism slightly and shed a different set of colors on it than the way that we're currently thinking about it. Um, so that's the, and, and uh, you know, going back to my point about the factfulness, like think about the issue with the anti-globalization debate for all of its imperfections, you know, the, 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 the last 25 years has led to a situation where prior to the pandemic, less than 10% of the world's population was living in extreme poverty for the first time in the history of mankind. If you go back to when I was in college, it was over 30% of the population was living in extreme poverty. If you go back just 10 years earlier than that, 50% of the world was living in extreme poverty. So this is an amazing you know, miracle that has happened in modernity, this, this improving and the escaping of billions from extreme poverty. But yeah. if you talk to someone like Thomas Poga, right, he would try to tell you that the world's getting worse and worse and worse and worse every day, right? And so how do we engage that conversation with, with people like him? I think that's, that's a conversation that hasn't happened because the sides just choose sides and they don't engage. And so that's an underappreciated conversation, which is how do you bring a high modern liberal and a classical liberal into discourse with each other without them choking each other? And, and I think that's, that's also necessary for us to go forward. Can you tell me about a time, either in your professional or personal life, when you failed spectacularly? I'm talking a big one, right? Yeah. What, did you, what happened and what did you learn from it? The reason I'm asking is because we don't talk enough about how to learn from failure. failure mm -hmm. And the importance of failure in birthing success. Um, by the way, there's a, a fantastic book by Tim Harford on ADAPT, and, and the book's thesis is that, uh, you know, most of the great successes are born from failures, and then, you know, go forward. So, um, so at, at, a, at a personal level, I mean, I've had to uh, wrestle with a fair amount of failures. Um, I've been very fortunate in the fact that I had one big success that helped me get through all of my failures, which is that I met my wife when I was very young. We were teenagers and she's my best friend and she's been with me through the whole thing. I, I don't mean that as being trite. I mean, I'm really, really fortunate because she's seen me go through all of these different things and has been a bedrock in my life throughout that whole period and, um, and, and, and kept me from doing stupid things in response to failures. So the first one is, is that I... When I was younger, my aspirations were all athletic uh, aspirations. And I went to college with that only in mind uh, of those things. And I suffered injuries and I did not recover from, well from the injuries. And I had to reboot my, my life or be open to rebooting my life in a way that I, before I had those injuries, I never would have rebooted my life. Now there's there's a kind of a wrinkle in all of that in the sense that when I got hurt, uh, my maternal grandfather uh, had congestive heart failure. He was in his 80s. And I went back home with the cast and everything on. 
And he grabbed me and told me to graduate from college. I was going to be the first male in my immediate family that would graduate from college. And so he said, whatever you do, graduate from college. A funny story of that is that, you know, uh, eight years later, I'm getting my PhD. I'm home for uh, Thanksgiving and my Nana pulls me aside and because she was the only other one in the hospital room with me when my grandfather did this. And she pulls me and she sighed. She goes, Peter, she goes, I know Papa told you to graduate from college, but you got to stop going to school sometime. <laughs> I said, I know, Nana, I'm about ready to stop going to school. But, uh, but that had a profound influence on me and it didn't happen overnight. It, it, it was a slow and difficult process of trying to figure out who I was at the age of 18 and 19 years old because all of my identity was wrapped up. And so that was completely destroyed in me and I had to rebuild that. And eventually I rebuilt it around the notion of, of becoming an economist. And again, I was very fortunate. I chose a graduate school in economics, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 two years after I chose the graduate school in economics, my professor wins a Nobel prize. So everyone thinks I made the right choice. I get out of graduate school. I'm writing a dissertation on the Soviet Union and then the Soviet Union falls. So again, I made the right choice um, that, you know, and I ended up by getting a job, a plum academic job at a, a top 10 school uh, at the time, NYU. Um, I, uh, two years out, at, uh, I was at NYU. I was shortlisted for a fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And I ended up by taking a year to be a national fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. So everything was going great. Life was going, you know, all on a trajectory, you know? And, uh, and then I got denied tenure. I mean, I, I, I won awards. I was the best teacher. I won the best teacher in the College of Arts and Sciences. So I was one of NYU's golden dozen. I still have the plaque up in my, uh, my office and everything. Um, I had published, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different stuff. So I had published and I had taught really well, but I didn't establish myself in the rules that NYU had set up, which was to be one of the top five people in your cohort. And I had been given every resource in the world um, by NYU. I loved every minute that I taught at New York University. Don't get me wrong. But I, I was spit out by academia, you know, at, at that level, that, that high level. And I, I didn't want to leave the New York area, so a former graduate student of ours at NYU uh, got me a job at a school nearby, uh, and and I taught there for a while, and and that was great experience because you know I was I was a uh, you know it was a, it was a smaller pond and I was a bigger fish in that pond. But what's interesting is the first day I remember when I was at that office, I sat in my office, and I hate to admit this. But I closed the door and I looked around and I actually had like cried because I thought to myself, what the hell did I do that I have to end up by being here when I used to be there? Like, you know, I got to like, and so I had to, to really, you know, rethink. And then I had the opportunity to go to GMU and, you know, and, and that was a Tyler Cowan came up and, 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 you know, convinced me to, to move out of New York, New Jersey area, which was really difficult for my wife and I to do because that was our home. Um, you know, uh, both of our fathers had passed away. So our mothers were there and, you know, we were part of the people 
watching our mothers as they aged and 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 our families were all there and so but we picked up sticks and we moved to fairfax i never thought i'd ever come back to fairfax and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me professionally um now that's all personal how about intellectual i think intellectually uh one of the things that and, and you might push back on this actually is that i think when i was younger so i got I was introduced to Eleanor Ostrom when I was a graduate student because of project I was working on having to do with the Soviet system. And in particular, an aspect of that project, which has to do with the de facto and the de jure rights. And Gordon Tullock alerted me to what Lynn was doing, which was working on de facto and de jure rights with regard to common pool resources. This is before she publishes, you know, covering the commons. So I got in touch with her. And I read all the things I got. And one of the things about the Ostroms, I ended up by writing a book about them. Um, but one of the things about the Ostroms that they used to say, which I never really quite understood, was that um, we need to find a social science that is appropriate for a self-governing democratic society. Right? And I understood Hayek's critique of socialism. I understood Buchanan's critique. But I never really understood what the Ostroms were talking about, a self-governing, a science that is consistent with the demands of a self-governing democratic society. And so I think if you read earlier works of mine, this aspect of the way I understood, let's say even big hairy questions like transition from socialism in East and Central Europe, that uh, my work is not as sensitive to that concern as it has become over the years, because I see the interconnection between what the Ostroms were stressing and the way we practice economics. So do we practice economics from a synoptic point of view or seen like a state, or do we practice economics like seen like a citizen? So do we see economics as the bottom up bubbling up or do we see it from the top down? And even as a free market tier, you can see it from the top down because you, you know, you, you, you know, in many ways, that's what the Washington consensus is, right? We're from afar, we see it from here, we're gonna impose these rules on you to improve your lives that you wouldn't know how to improve if you had to choose yourself. But that's different from the idea of seeing the, the sort of institutional solutions to the social problems bubbling up from the bottom up. And as I've aged and thought more about this, I've become more and more sensitive and more uh, re resonant, re um, reticent, re reticent, of pro-offering advice as if I knew what the right answer was. The right answer is found in the people there. Again, I think the trust has to go to the people, not to the theorists. And I think that the Ostroms were onto something. Once you get what the Ostroms are seeing, you see that Knight was arguing that, you see that Buchanan's arguing that, and you see that, that Hayek and actually Mises is arguing that. And that once you recognize that, it changes the way you understand them. And I think that that aspect of their work is what the critics simply don't get because they think they're about imposing on others. And I'll just, you know, let me just make one last set of references to someone who's working on this is Bill Easterly. So Bill Easterly wrote The Elusive Quest for Growth, which going back to your first question was all about incentives. But in his most recent book, it's called The Tyranny of Experts. And it is it addresses this issue of what happens when foreign bodies try to tell other people how to live. 
And he just published a paper about a year and a half ago in the journal that I edit on Adam Smith as a development economist. And what he stresses in there is that uh, Adam Smith is wrestling with this question of who's fit to be free. And as you know, a lot of the classical thinkers thought that only certain people were fit to be free, right? Other people needed to be educated to be free. But Adam Smith actually thought everyone was fit to be free. And Easterly identifies all this idea. And I think that point, again, hammers home something that I would like to communicate to the current generation of kids um, and, and, and interested lay people about what the power is of, of, of thinking through these things. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but it's both a personal you know, crisis and, and having to, to re-identify yourself and rebuild yourself when faced with the inevitable uh, kind of vagaries of life. And then the other one is an intellectual one that also comes, I think, from puzzling through and struggling and thinking about issues. I'm curious what you want people to say about you and your work 100 years hence. And a nice little way to put this would be, what do you want written on your tombstone? My parents don't have a tombstone. They have a bench at the, at the inlet in, in, uh, in uh, uh, New Jersey, in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. And it just says, Ellie and Fred, Captain Fred and Ellie Becky. That's it, you know. Um, and their legacy, of course, is their grand, is their kids, their grandchildren, and their great grandchildren. So, at some level, what I would love that I have on my tombstone is, you know, a beloved father and grandfather and and loving husband to Rosemary, you know, for whatever. So that's really, you know, at that level, that would be the the most important legacy I could ever have. Um, intellectually, though, it's an interesting question because Buchanan always put it to us this way. He always said to you, do you want to write, you know, uh, things that make you famous today? Think John Kenneth Galbraith, right? Or do you want to write things that will be read, you know, uh, tw you know, 20 years from now? You know, think Milton Friedman and Capitalism and Freedom or whatever that was going on at the time. Or do you want to write things that will be read, you know, centuries from now? Think Adam Smith, right? And so to Buchanan, it should be that we want to write Adam Smith and you should definitely do that. And I was, I was born up in that ethos and that intellectual culture. So I buy into that. So what would I like to do? I would like my books to be an acid-free paper and exist in, in centuries from now, because that's actually my, would, would have some immortality to my intellectual legacy. Now, whether or not I think I've achieved that yet is something that I will say no and that it's something I'm constantly striving to, to, to achieve in some sense. And I think I still have some stuff in me. But what I really would love to see if someone wrote was to look back and see that at George Mason University, because of Tyler, I was given an opportunity to work with graduate students as a mature faculty member Whereas at NYU, I learned how to interact with graduate students as an assistant professor. Those are different things. So at, N at GMU, I became a mentor to graduate students. And I would like people to look back and look at the, the legacy of my graduate students as scholars and as teachers and as people and mentors to others, uh, those who, who paid it forward for others. So I like to look at you know, people like that work with me, like Chris Coyne and Virgil Storr and Pete Leeson and see what they've done with their careers and then with the students that they've mentored, but also students beyond George Mason, like you know, David Scarbeck, who's up at Brown now and, and, and doing very well, and Ben Powell, 
um, you know, who's out of Texas Tech and the work that he's doing and building the program there. And Dan Smith, who's at Middle Tennessee State, building a brand new PhD program and doing there. Um, and, you know, Scott Bullier, who's a, a, the youngest business school dean in America, you know, he was able to do that. And I think that, you know, that legacy or that, that idea is the thing that I'm most proud about. So in my house, I have a, this is my, my office. I have in the basement, my library, which is all filled. And then I have in my sitting room, a very nice cabinet bookshelf. All right. And it's a big, it takes up the side of a wall and it's my most prized you know, thing intellectually to look at because it consists of the books that my students have written. And so whenever anyone comes in, I always, you know, bring them over there and say, look, these are the books that my, you know, my students have all written and, and, and done. And, and so, you know, I don't even like to call them my students, to be honest with you, because even when they were graduate students, many of them were my colleagues, you know, they were, they were like ready to go and, and all of that. And I think that's probably the thing that I would like people to look back on and say, oh, wow, you know, he mentored, you know, uh, you know, 60, 70 graduate students that all went on to have very good careers and taught and taught other people. And then, you know, the students of students and the students of students kind of thing. And, you know, hopefully if I have, you know, another good 20 years left in me, I'll get another series of students and, 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 you know, one of them will, will have students and you keep going there and you get grand students, you know, and great grand students and your academic flower flourishes. And that's what I hope. That's my hope. <laughs> it's, 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 I, I would love it. Acid free paper, all my books, no doubt. I want, I, I have that aspiration, but the most important thing that I ever do is be as a teacher and creating space for other people that are younger than me to be able to have an easier road than, than like what I perceived that I had. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jimmy.